so it wasn't about us or our brand. It was about the ideas. The ideas kind of stood on their own. And then it was about, well, you know a lot about our business. You definitely have done your homework. And those two things gave us credibility, even if our name and our client roster didn't. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the Selling with Love podcast. I have a returning guest with one of the best first names ever, of course, with a slight bias. His name is Jason Harris, co-founder and CEO of the award-winning creative advertising agency, Mechanism, as well as co-founder of the Creative Alliance and the author of the national bestseller, The Soulful Art of Persuasion. Now, in a previous episode, we went deeper into The Soulful Art of Persuasion. And what's very interesting is myself and Jason Harris don't disagree on many topics when it comes to our way we should be approached approaching sales. And so what we're going to have as a conversation today is just talking a little bit deeper and more specifically about anyone who might be looking at working with bigger accounts. What does that look like and what changes in your business you need to consider if you're going to be going for major, big, and the best accounts out there? We're also going to talk about how to stand out if your service is highly creative. There's so many people that have come back to me and said, I'm an artist, I'm a painter, or I'm in the field, maybe music. How do I make sure that I differentiate myself, especially with another topic I want to make sure we get to cover is the role of AI in the creative fields and in sales and how we can best prepare with this inevitable tool that's going to be at our disposal and what does it mean for us as business owner. Jason, welcome back to the show. Super excited to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. What I was going to say is that I bought your book, but I haven't read it yet. That's okay. I had bought your book on the first interview and this is what's funny. We did an interview before I read your book and then for this presentation, we had this scheduled a while back and you had a very, and this is one thing I appreciate about your team, your team was like, hey, we need to have all your questions prepared. We want to be very organized. And typically when I do interviews, we're very flowy. I went to Jessica who works on your team and I just want to acknowledge her because I said, you know what? I want to show up as the best as well. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to cancel the interview. We'll reschedule it a couple months in the future. I'm going to take the time to read your book so that I can come here and have some of the stories. And that's how I want to show up better for every interview that I make. I just want to appreciate your team for calling me out to be even greater, which is probably going to lead into what we're going to talk about now, which is going for bigger clients. Demands a bit more from you than just winging it, doesn't it? It definitely does. I think it's a really good topic because any entrepreneur starting out, you know, when we started the company, which was about 17 years ago, so it's been a while, we really wanted to go for big brands. And when you're a new agency or company or whatever services you're selling, no one cares about another ad agency or another services company. There's enough of them out there. But we really wanted to get well-known brands on the roster. And it took many years, you know, probably like three or four years to do that. But what I would do is get lesser known brands that paid a little bit of money, just kind of keep the lights on. And then I would pitch big brands. And we had a really big breakout campaign with Microsoft that you had referenced with Dimitri Martin. And it's in the book. And when we had that campaign, it was, we kind of did it at cost and we didn't do it to make any money, even though it was with a very successful, well-known brand that has billions of dollars. And so what I always 
tried to strive for and believed in is, you know, do the less known brands that don't have a lot of money. And my philosophy was we're going to do the big famous brands when we're starting at cost, or sometimes even we pitch free ideas and we'd say, look, we'll cover production. And if you like it, you can run it and pay us back for production. And it was an investment. You know, it's easy on the other side of it for me to say, yeah, everyone should do that. It's really hard when you don't have the funds. But for me, getting on our website and in our creds deck, you know, famous brands like Nintendo, Microsoft, Adidas, for me, that was worth going after and doing free work just to get those big brands because big brands beget bigger brands. If they're like, well, Microsoft and Adidas trust this company, then we can trust them too. And then you can start charging the right fees for your work, but you've got those case studies to prove it because no one cares about the window washing company or the dry cleaning company that you did, you know? So that's one thing that I really believe in is, you know, do the work to keep the lights on, do the local stuff, but then swing for the fences, proactively pitch ideas, cold call, get someone to connect you to someone and say, hey, I have an idea for you. I know you're coming out with something new. I just want to, you know, pitch this idea. And you might pitch 10 and you might get two or one, but, you know, after a couple of years, you've got really famous brands on your roster and then you can kind of take it to the next level. So that was one philosophy I always believe in is do free work and the money will come later, you know? Mm. Well, Jay, I want to unpack that a bit for you because, you know, somebody might be listening to this and saying like, wow, okay, you got Microsoft. Like, what is the things that we need to have in place before you even go and pitch someone like a big account like Microsoft? Like, you would have had experience under your belt. You would have had some confidence in your idea. A lot of times when you get started, like, you might not even have the skills refinement to confidently go pitch a big brand. So I want to take you back to the beginning at your beginner's mindset. What was it that made you go to a point where you said, you know what, we could pitch Microsoft and we'd be awesome at it? Well, I think we always believed in our creativity, even if we weren't a well-known brand at the time, a well-known company. And we did a lot of strategic homework. So if we're pitching a well-known client, we would read the annual report. You know, we would listen to the quarterly stockholders meeting. We would study the person that we're pitching and what their position is, maybe something that they said in the press about what they need to accomplish. So we would really go in Confidence came from being prepared and we would really go in understanding what they needed to crack. And then we would have three ideas that we think could solve what they needed to crack. And so it wasn't about us or our brand. It was about the ideas. The ideas kind of stood on their own. And then it was about, while you know a lot about our business, you definitely have done your homework. And those two things gave us credibility, even if our name and our client roster didn't. And of course, like, You know, if anyone's going to come and say, hey, give me 45 minutes, I've got some free ideas to help you solve this X problem. You have a new product launching. They're not going to say no, you know, especially now. And when we were doing it, we were flying all over the place. You know, now you could just do it over Zoom and it costs nothing except the manpower that you put into it. And so, you know, doing your homework, really knowing the person you're pitching, what triggers them, and then that'll make you confident to be able to sell. You know, it's funny, Jay, because, you know, all of this information is more accessible than when you got started. Like we didn't have access to all the social profiles, being able to search all the article. Everything is super easy now. 
But how many of the agencies actually go above and beyond and do as much as what you were doing? Like, is this something everybody does or is this the rare that makes you stand out? I don't think everybody does it. I think it's rare. And I think as you get more well-known and you build up your brand, like I need to go back to that rigor. I don't really read annual reports for clients that we are pitching to win anymore. I should, but I was more of a student back then. And now I'm sort of letting our roster and our brand name carry the day. And it's a good reminder. I always do study who we're pitching. Like that's something that I've carried through. But really, you know, when you're pitching in a service-based business, when you're pitching, you really have to know how the business that you're pitching makes money. That's really important. And it's not just about a great creative idea. You know, we have a panda bear eating a carrot, you know, (laughs) whatever the random idea that you think is funny is, you've got to really know how the business makes money because so much of, you know, when selling and the person you're selling to now, they've got to create value for the company that they work for. So you have to really be a student of that. But yeah, that's what I recommend. So I recommend really studying will make you confident. Don't worry if you're not well-known or the brand's not well-known. And then try to do some work that will get you those big names and those big names will get you bigger projects and bigger brand names and it'll pay off in the long run. It's a little bit of short-term pain for building your business. I love that mentality. And that's kind of like the rite of passage is to do that studying. And for those who are familiar with the methodology for selling with love, you know, the second love of selling with love is love your client enough that you'll care to understand them so well that you'll be speaking their language and they'll understand that the value you want to give to them is actually coming from their perspective. Because the other side that I've seen, like I've had a lot of people come to me and just give me random ideas. And it's almost like ideas can be tossed from any place But what you're saying is that, no, no, it's not just an idea. It's an idea that's been refined, thought of, and actually tailored for who exactly you're speaking to that solves a problem that's relevant for them. That's exactly right. That's a nuance that's very important because, you know, an idea is not worth anything if it's not actually tailored. But at the same time, you also have the capabilities of execution behind that idea. And is that, in essence, what happens is when you pitch someone, you're also saying, oh, and by the way, we can make this happen. Yeah, we'll produce it, we'll make it, yeah, we'll deliver it, and we'll figure out how to distribute it. So yeah, I'd say the other thing that, you know, kind of my philosophy that I talk about, which is similar to your philosophy about, you know, it shows love to the client by really understanding them, is we have this philosophy at the company called, it's slightly different, but it gets to the same place as your philosophy but it is assumed genius. So we always assume that our clients are incredibly smart. They know exactly what they want and they know how to drive the business forward. And I've worked at other places prior to, you know, starting my own thing where we would often feel like we had to save the client from themselves. Like they didn't know any better. Like we treated them like they weren't geniuses or they weren't smart enough to, you know, find the big idea. So We always say assume genius and then collaborate. And that's part of selling with love too, is deep collaboration with whoever you're partnering with on the other side. That's one thing. One other point I wanted to make is when you're also starting out, money is very well spent on, and I know you're recommending this to people in your network, but SEO and press for a new company starting out is really, really important. 
And so figuring out how to get discovered when people are looking for, I don't know, a PR firm, a consultant, whatever it might be in the entrepreneur you know, services space, SEO is really important because when we started spending money on that, we would get inbound calls. And when we started spending money on getting press, and so you want to get, like, let's say we invested in doing work with Microsoft, the campaign came out, we need to make sure that people know about the campaign so that clients can see it. And then they'll be like, well, we love that campaign. They did it for Microsoft. Let's call these guys. And so, you know, case studies with brand names and then making sure you're discoverable and then also spending money on getting press around the campaigns or the work that you do or whatever it might be. I don't know who your audience, what type of companies they run, but any company can take advantage of that. Yeah. Well, already I can tell that you're used to dealing with specific clients. So when you give advice, you have to kind of tailor it for who it is relevant to. And so for anybody listening, who's going to be pitching to other businesses, this is where this information is going to be the most applicable. I love what you're saying. Assume genius. I think this is one that's missing, particularly in the B2C sales world. So for anybody who's listening, might have a small business that's pitching to consumers. We often think that the process of selling is to assume that people are idiots. We have to walk them through scripts and we have to kind of almost trick them into to their own train of thoughts for them to buy, which, you know, is not the way that you want to sell to build a sustainable business. In essence, when you assume genius, I think that's one of the most powerful things that we could take away right now is just what I would call the assumptive close is you're assuming these people are trying to solve a problem. And if your product, you know, is going to genuinely solve this for so much more value than what you ask in return, that's when it's our duty to go out and sell. We don't need to be using script, trying to trick them that it's not by, oh, will you be paying Visa or MasterCard? And the way that you say that, that's going to make the sale happen. No, it's assuming genius, respect, and having a communication with them about actually understanding what they need and providing them the right thing. I love that. And I want to make sure that's sent home for both those who are selling B2C and for B2B. Yeah, you're never going to trick a client into doing business with you. Like, it doesn't work. Like, our bullshit detectors are very, very uh, high. And we're on high alert whenever someone's selling to us. So you really have to find out what is the solve that you can help with to get them across the line and don't make it about transaction. Don't make it transactional. You're building your network. You're building a connection. And maybe you're not the right person for the problem they're trying to solve. You might be able to recommend someone. And then you've created a trustworthy advocate and they might recommend someone for you down the road. So you kind of really play the long game and look at it as you're building your network and your connections. It's not about always be closing. I have a chapter in the book about never be closing. Never be closing is letting go of that short-term transactional thinking. And you're focusing on every interaction, you're building a meaningful relationship. And those meaningful relationships will pay dividends down the road. Mm. Might not be that one sale, but it'll come back to you tenfold. 100%. There's a foundation that needs to be in place to be able to come from a place of love is something I talk a lot in the book. You have to have a level of privilege. And the reason I use privilege is for it to be uh, slightly triggering, but you need to have your business finances in order. You can't be desperate if you want to be selling for the long term, because if you're having struggles paying the bills and trying to put food on the table, it becomes sometimes hard to have that long term vision when your immediate needs are very, very high. 
And so you spoke about how you had your column there, regular clients that were coming in that were kind of paying the bills, keeping the staff and the business going. I wanted to see if you had any other mechanisms that made sure that, hey, you had your foundation in place so you could go and play the long-term game when you're going for these longer accounts. Because, hey, we're not talking about, you know, you pick up the phone, you call Microsoft, they send you a check the same day. There's a time cycle around this whole thing. So I just wanted to understand, you know, when you were building mechanism, what were some of the core things you made sure were in place so you could survive and then be able to sell from a beautiful place that was patient? Well, you know, I started with some partners and when we started it, we really had other jobs that we were saving up knowing that we were going to start something. And when we started something, we had some money. You know, we didn't have a ton of money, but we didn't pay ourselves for a while. So we had to have a reserve and we had to know that we weren't gonna have anxiety every single day you know we also had very few employees i think we had like two other employees like six of us total and so we really made sure that we had money saved up we knew it was going to be lean and mean for a couple of years and we really you know lived life accordingly we didn't start a company and and start balling out you know we started a company and we're really living super lean until you know, we knew it was going to pay off if we stuck with it eventually, but it took a while. So that's one thing is if you're starting something, you know, there's a lot of advice out there from a lot of well-known people that will just say, you know, start today, like drop everything and just start today because you got to live your dream and life short. And that's fine, but it's not practical because if you're trying to start a business and you're living paycheck to paycheck, and then you try to start a business, you're gonna be stressed beyond belief. You're gonna be super anxious, and you're not gonna be able to sell with love. You know, you're not gonna soulfully persuade because you're gonna be like, I need, if I don't get this deal, I don't put food on the table, I need this deal. And you're not making the best decisions for you or your client. And so you gotta strategically plan that I wanna start something and I'm going to start something, but I'm going to do it when I have a little bit of a cushion and I feel like I have the right experience to do it. And so I always knew I wanted to you know, start a marketing services firm. And so when I did, I worked at a lot of other places and I would keep a journal of managers and mentors that I had. And I would write down like things that I loved about their approach and things that I hated about a culture whatever i kind of was became a student for a number of years until eventually i felt confident i could start something i found the right people to do it with and i had a little bit of a cushion you know we i wasn't i didn't have a massive cushion like i wasn't i was still stressed about rent etc but i had just enough where i knew okay i could go through like a lean year and you know give it a year to see if it works and so those are some some things. Be strategic about it. You know, don't just like drop everything and and say you're going to start a business because you saw someone on Instagram that hyped you up. You know, because <laughs> the reality <laughs> oh, but is going to be a lot everywhere. You yeah. see this all the time, and I'm so glad that you're maybe offering a glass of refreshing and sobering water. And I also want to just put things into perspective because I mean, mechanism huge. You guys got amazing accounts. You do amazing work. But I'd just be curious to know. You know, by the time you and your partners 
you know, decided to do this and kind of go all in. Already you had been strategic, you had work jobs, saved money, knowing that you wanted to have at least a runway so you could do the things that are in the best interest of the client, not to your own financial needs right when you're beginning, knowing that, hey, we're pitching big accounts, we're going to be doing these at cost because we need the social proof. And then we're going to maybe take a few accounts here and there so we can get a couple income streams in. But rather, you had a big vision which required you to actually have these elements that were strategic in place. How many years of experience in your craft? Because you're talking about an agency that was highly creative. How many years of experience in your craft did you have at a job, which seems to be such a dirty word today, before you had the confidence with your team to be like, hey, we're going to go and do this ourselves? I had about mm, like seven, eight years before I did it. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think you need that many, you know, but I think you need probably five, depending on the type of service that you're providing or whatever your company you're starting. But I think that allows you to work on big accounts, run bigger things at a bigger company it gives you confidence, you know, that you know what you're doing and you've been there before. So when you're in a situation, you know how to handle it. But, you know, it's still challenging when all of a sudden you don't have a billing department or, you know, someone running the invoicing or finances. You don't have an HR department. <laughs> you don't know how to do benefits. You don't even know if you need to legally provide benefits. Like, it's super stressy. And so you got to know your craft enough to be comfortable in your craft so you can then learn the entrepreneurship part of running a business, which is a whole other skill. And that the only way you can really learn that is on the job. But if you're learning your craft and how to run a business at the same time without any experience, that can be kind of a deadly combo. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to reassure for anybody who is bold and wants to go all out, you know, swing for the fences. I don't want to be someone to put some blocks on your ambitions. What I will say is, as I'm having this conversation with Jason, is I want to make sure there's a sobering thought for anybody who's working in their job right now and thinking, oh my God, I need to quit as soon as possible because I'm wasting my time here. And I think there's some very valuable things you can do, just like Jason shared, analyzing what are the things you're noticing in your work that actually works, which doesn't, so that when you decide to make the leap into entrepreneurship, you've refined your craft, you've been exposed to a lot of different ideas so that you've learned on the job. And so you get to shave a lot of that time to be successful in the process. So I'm so glad we got to unpack a lot of this, Jason, which kind of brings me to one aspect that I think is very interesting is, I don't know if you've been seeing this on Instagram, but everybody's posting an avatar face of themselves, you know, uh, with AI generated. Yeah, you did it. I haven't done it yet. I'm about to do it. Maybe I'll go do it right after this call. So everybody's showing what AI can do. And I was just using a chat bog from OpenAI, which was fantastic. And I was thinking, oh my God, I thought the sales role would be one of the longest lasting defenders in a world where AI comes. And I'm seeing these chat bots that are AI driven, that are answering every question so beautifully, so clearly that I'm thinking, wow, sales is gonna be replaced by AI in a big capacity. And now looking at these pictures and this art, creative fields are being you know, substituted with AI. I wanted to understand from you being a creative advertising agency, what's the role of AI how do you get to prepare yourself as a company knowing that this front is coming? Well, I think it's coming, but I still feel like AI can be useful in certain aspects. It can be useful in creating multiple assets for marketing. It can be useful in versioning. It can be useful in mixing around copy. It can be useful in you know creating 
different visuals. It could be useful in, you know, kind of the A-B testing of my world. But great ideas are still an endangered species. And you still need to connect with consumers on an emotional level. And an emotional level has to be done by humans. And you have to be doing human research. And you have to really understand what makes people tick, what's going to get them to buy your product over another product. And I think advertising can maybe be done with AI, but building a strong brand cannot be. And I think people in general don't love advertising. You know, they're not, they're not like super glued into, you know, a pop-up that's going to run before they listen to your book or they, you know, watch a video or, you know, an ad that comes up before the World Cup game comes on. Those are fine, and that's advertising, and maybe part of that can be done with AI. But people love strong brands, and they love when they know what the brand stands for, and the brand has a deep connection with them. And I still will always believe, and maybe I'm old school, that that has to be done from a human-to-human connection. And so I think AI has a place. I think it certainly can save some time and money. It can get you to maybe some sales goals quicker, but it's still short term and long term brand building has to be done by human to human connection because you need an emotional component to build a great brand. And so maybe it'll be a blend. Maybe there'll be, you know, fewer people at a company and they'll be using some machines to do some stuff, but it'll always be here. It'll never go away. You know, a lot of people might have some fears around AI, but I'm actually feeling quite excited about it. And I find that movies often paint the picture of what possibly could happen. I remember back in the day, Star Trek was kind of showing some of the technologies we get to use now back in the 60s or 50s or whatever years Star Trek is. And for me, the biggest thing that I see as an indication of where AI is, even in the creative fields or in the sales fields, is looking at Jarvis, the way they work with Iron Man, Tony Stark or Robert Downey Jr., whichever identity you want to associate him where he's working on a project, he needs to be involved, but all the information is at his access. All of the things are being given to him on displays that are very accessible. And he gets to be focused on that human element, which is bringing the creativity, having that understanding, the context, and has to kind of prompt the AI, but they get to collaborate together. And that's a future of AI that I think is much more exciting than seeing like, you know, Skynet taking over the world. And so I still have high hopes. And I think these tools are just going to push us creatively in a ways that will be freed from a lot of the constraint from like, oh, yeah, I need to resize this image to fit the Facebook algorithm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's so true. And like, you know, think about that AI generator that everyone's using now, which is great because it creates awesome headshots and you look like a superhero or whatever. But the AI isn't asking you questions about, you know, who you are or what you care about. It's just, it's just generating stuff. So when you look through it, you're like, ah, it's cool, but is it customized to me or not? And I think every five years, something like this comes up. Like when TiVo started, it was the death of TV advertising. Like no one was ever going to run a TV ad because everyone could fast forward through them. And obviously that didn't happen. Or, you know, proliferation of social media, you know, that was going to be the nail in the coffin for advertising. So there's always something that comes up and, you know, you find a way around it. Now, as a company, you always have to pivot and evolve and embrace it. 
and not ignore it. So like we were, we're a creative agency and we started a performance division so that we could analyze and measure the work we put out there. And it wasn't because we love measurement and we love data and we have data scientists, which we obviously we love now, but it's because that's where the market was going. So you have to be able to stay with the market in order to be relevant. And, you know, whatever it is that lets you be relevant and still be able to do the creative side, you got to keep pivoting and evolve and grow because, you know, it's, it's always going to go forward. There's always going to be leaps and you just got to be on top of that leap. You can't dig in just because you don't like it, you, you know, because you'll be irrelevant. I wanted to say one more thing because we were talking earlier about when you're starting a business, how to stand out. And I think there's, there's kind of three things I want to just throw out there if, if I can. I think when you're starting a company, one thing that's really important is even if you're small and you're like a solopreneur or you have three people, whenever you start a business, you should always write down the values of that business. And I think that's part of like selling with love. What do you care about? Are you going to be an optimistic company? Are you going to be a collaborative company? Are you going to be a diverse company? Whatever those values that you care about, you should write those values down when you start and really live by those filters in terms of like who you hire, who you work with. So I think starting a business, like always write down your values. I think creating a positioning, what do you stand for that's simple, clear, and memorable in the marketplace? No matter what kind of business you have, think about your unique positioning. What do you do that no one else does? And how do you make it snappy and memorable? And then the third thing, so values coming up with a positioning. And the third is process. So what is your unique process? How you do the work that you do? Is there a three-step process? Is there a nine-step process? Is there a four-step process? That's not just going to help you internally you know, grow and work better. Those three things, values, positioning, and process will also help you attract clients because they're going to ask you right off the bat, you know, hey, Jason, what makes you different? Hey, Betty, hey, Mark, how's your company different than all the other companies I could work with? And having those at your disposal really makes a big difference in starting a business. And I think sometimes we maybe skip that step, but that's an important step. Yeah, I'm glad you added that because when you get to have that clarity, it makes a lot of other decisions very easy to make. And I'm glad you brought it up because I recently had this conflict. It was a client that was being pitched to me. It was going to be a really, really lucrative account to work with and to publish. And I started doing research on the client and I started finding inconsistencies between the following that they had and the posts that they were making. And I realized that there was a lot of manufactured and purchased social clout behind the account. And I started listening to the message that they were sharing and I realized it wasn't a message that I was super resonating with. But then again, when the neediness is there and there's a big dollar amount waving in your face, you start thinking, should I be compromising on those values? And I'm very grateful to my partner. We were having a conversation and I was thinking about this account and she just asked me a very powerful question that I thought really filtered through everything and made me make a powerful F yes or F no decision, which was, as an agency, if I work with this account, that means I'm going to create more of that in the world. Is that a world that I want to see? And I went, damn, no, it's not. 
And so I had to refuse the account. And I think that can only happen once you have that positioning, you're getting clear on your values and it becomes just so much more easier to be able to do business with a clear conscience and then attract the tribe that you do want to see because they probably have the same likes and dislikes as what you believe in. I love that. You know, it's easy to try to go after that money, but once you do it once, you know, you can't really go back. Damn. Jay, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. As I mentioned, like we're cut from the same cloth, Soulful Art of Persuasion. Guys, pick up a copy of this book. If you haven't already from the last show, I'll put a link in the show notes as well. And if you find yourself being a big account that's looking for one of the best creative agencies out there, definitely go and check out Mechanism. They're fantastic at what they do. And I just wanna make sure everyone here is inspired and left with understanding that guess what? If you're gonna be building something, you can go for the big accounts. Make sure you have your skill sets tuned in. Make sure you can always be pitching great ideas by doing the research and being clear on what are their needs so you can speak a language that they understand and then you can stand out. Everybody's showing ideas, but the best ideas, the great ideas comes from a deep understanding on how you solve their problems. I love the way that Jason approaches everything. I love that he has a lot of sobering thoughts around what is the journey? What is the safety you need to have in place so you can boldly go for what matters? And with that, we are left with an amazing session. Jay, thank you again for coming back on the show. This was fantastic. Yeah, it was awesome. Thanks, Jason. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast.